Welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church, as well as visitors and family and guests. Uh, We are continuing in a gospel according... I I did it again. We are continuing in the epistle of Galatians. For those of you that are visiting, I've been out for a while. And so before that, I've been preaching through the gospel according to Matthew for quite some time. So now that's two weeks in a row, though. I'm just going to keep it going. I'm just going to keep saying the gospel and be wrong. We are in Galatians. We'll be covering quite a, a large amount this morning, of uh, starting in uh, chapter 4, and we'll be going through the, the verses 1 through 20. Uh, if you are visiting or have not been here for a while, I will uh, read the, the verses in their entirety. Uh, after uh, doing the reading, we'll give you an opportunity to pray silently. Uh, it's an opportune time to to confess and, and repent of sin that maybe you have not. Uh, it's a moment to ask God, the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, uh, to illuminate your heart and your mind to the truth of the Word. Ask that you are here this morning and you are outside of the faith, you're not a Christian. Just ask that you consider the words you hear today, uh, that you would be attentive to the things that we've done in public worship. Uh, we are here uh, gathered together on the Lord's Day for the purpose of, of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior. We do so through celebrating our union with one another, our fellowship of the saints. We do, do it through prayer. Uh, we do it through song or praise, giving back to God in light of the truth of His Word and what He's done in our life. And we now do it through time of the ministry of the Word, God's Word. So as we now read, turning to Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, I'll be reading 328 as a, otherwise it seems a little broken up. So in 328 to start, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 
Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of God. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as your saints gather here on the Lord's Day in public worship, we come to celebrate the resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Lord, and our King. Lord, we come in in order to give glory to the One who has redeemed us, who has saved us, who has called us out of broken, sinful rebellion, into sonship, as heirs, as recipients of God's own grace and mercy. And God, now as we come before your word, I pray that you illuminate our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would see in our own lives, our sinful waywardness, our constant, almost baffling belief and ability to worship ourselves in other things. 
God, confront our waywardness. Draw us to You through the Spirit and the Word. That our affections would be turned from these dead things, these fleeting things, and turn to You, O Lord. Lift up your people's eyes. Turn their hearts and their minds to the worship of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, now we pray also for the unbelievers in our midst. We pray that in your good pleasure, you have appointed this day and time that they would hear the gospel and be transformed. And Lord, more than anything, may you be glorified in this continued public worship. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> the book of Galatians, the backdrop of it is, is, is Paul's greatest opponents, it seems, in all of his writing, were those who would follow him in his missionary uh, travels to where he was beginning and teaching and starting churches and then later moving on. They were called the Judaizers. They were ethnic Jews who had at least professed faith in Christ. And they would follow Paul and usually, almost always, until he wait till he was gone, and then begin to infiltrate or interact with the existing church body. And they had a bone to pick with Paul and his teaching. Primarily what they saw as a throwing out of the law of God or the law of Moses and seeing Paul as someone who was advertising lawless living because they didn't understand the gospel at all. And so what they would do is they would interact with these churches and in essence tell them that yes, believing in Christ is good, but there are these other things that you also need to do to graduate to the next level. Uh, One scholar I was reading this week said that it was like they believed that that the law was a graduate program for the faith. Yes, you've come to faith, but now you need to get into this new program in order to get a higher level. It sounds like a pyramid scheme. If If you're like someone who does a Facebook pyramid scheme, I'm not insulting you on purpose. Yes, I am. And through this entire letter, Paul has been spelling out for this this congregation their need to understand why this was so dangerous. And the underlying aspect of most of these epistles in the New Testament have an aspect of confrontation with false teaching. This is false about the gospel and it has ramifications for your life if you believe it. And so these believers are robbed of their joy. 
It's one of the lines that's used here. We're in the Greek. It's a little bit different. In the ESV, it's actually one of the ways where the NIV gets it right. Don't throw anything. It's this idea of asking these people, what happened to your joy? So if someone comes along and tells you, yes, you're free in Christ, but now you have to do all these things as well. And if you don't do them, that you are no longer free in Christ. And not just that, you might not be a faithful believer anymore. And from a congregation that believed the gospel as it was handed down to the apostles, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the great Passover lamb with who we were long waiting for. And now the law is applied in your life through his sacrifice. And the law is a guide for you to understand and remember your great wickedness. And be reminded of God's holiness and and the the, the, the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice. And so it draws the believer when looking at the law in light of having the spirit and understanding the gospel of Christ and their own depravity and sinfulness to always be reminded of his glory, of his beauty, of his holiness, of his goodness. And asking God's mercy when you fail in keeping his law, knowing that that mercy is there. And that that war you wage until you are completed in Christ. When he returns and you are gifted with immortality in glorified body and glorified spirit. Until that time, we wage war with ourselves. And God's grace is always sufficient when we fail. But that's not what the Judaizers believed. Failure in adhering to the law meant that you probably weren't of the faith. And so Paul is concerned about the Galatians and where they are and how they view themselves in light of God's work. Because when they began to look at their own work rather than the work of Christ on the cross and looking at the law and going, well, that's not me, then it begins to bring and it takes all the joy out of the life of a believer. It's all about me. It's all based on what I do. A joyless faith. Because your eyes are off of Christ and back in the mirror. So Paul actually finishes that argument in these verses, these verbs, this first part of four, which is why going through all the way through 20 might be like, was he just, you know, not even going to explain anything? Maybe. But the reality is to see the end of this argument and see What happens in 8 through 20 is Paul's pastoral heart and someone who knows these people and is their friend and is in turmoil in what he's heard. So he he puts an exclamation point on his argument about the promise preceded the giving of the law. And you are inheritance of the promise. The promise is greater than the law. The law was parenthetical to prepare you for the coming of Christ, the promise of Abraham's seed. And so he tells them that their royalty, their royalty that's acting like slaves. In 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, now in one. 
I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. This is part of an argument that they made in the prior uh, set of verses from last week. He's letting him know you're an heir. But when he is a child, he's no different from a slave. In this ver- in verse 1 where it says he is owner of everything, it's one of the places where the ESV kind of undersells what's written in the Greek. The, word, the phrase is you, he is Lord of all. He's a Lord of all of the property. So as, as, as Paul is alluding to Greek and Roman and probably as well as Jewish background of how a son was recognized as an adult or a man in society. Meaning that while he was a certain age, he was not recognized as a man. So it didn't matter if he was the heir to vast amounts of property in riches He was given over to teachers or a pedagogue, as I mentioned last week, someone who was in charge of telling them what to eat, what to dress, when to wake up, when to go to bed. They literally had no rights, and that's what he means by they were no different from a slave, even though they were royalty. They They were royalty essentially unrealized. All these inheritance was theirs, but they had to be told and by the father, that they were now a man. In Hebrew culture, it was much younger, 12 years old. The Greeks capped it at 18, but it kind of had a similar thing. You had tutors, you had people, and then the, the father would announce it. It would be there at a festival <coughs> or a family event. The Romans had no age. It was, it was simply up to the father. Where the father recognized the son as a man. And then he was a man, he would be called a young master. And the young master would have then still, now he would be open to all of his inheritance. It's then he would be recognized as royalty by receiving that inheritance. Now Paul, the imagery hopefully for anyone who's a believer should not be lost on you. When Paul is saying you are children of the promise and heir he's talking about the theology of what's called sonship that counts for you two ladies and it means that you've inherited based on christ's sacrifice based on god's elective purpose for you in history an inheritance as a sovereign heir adopted sons and daughters all that language throughout the new testament is let you know you have this great inheritance that God has put aside for you. It's yours. And you receive it in part when you are redeemed in Christ. That's where you get the, the almost, but not yet. It's the idea of that you're receiving, you're a part of the kingdom. You're an inheritor because of Christ's work. But while we're here, while we're sojourners, while we're aliens here on this fallen world until Christ comes and completes all things, we haven't received it entirely yet. But we're no longer slaves. We're young masters. So Paul's using this very well-known cultural thing that would happen in both Roman, Greek, and Hebrew culture. And he uses it as as imagery to let them see it. 
in verse 3 by saying, In the same way also when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. All of this to say, he's pointing to this imagery to say, that's something, now that you are in Christ, you once were, you were once a slave. You were once a slave to your own desires. You were once a slave (coughs) to sin in every conceivable way. The law which revealed to you your own sinfulness, you reveled in. And you sought to break more of it. But then now you've been redeemed. All, All that phrase means in the Greek is to purchase. It's the common word that was used to describe the purchasing of a slave. All that language when it's talking about Christ the Redeemer and you've been redeemed and talking about your redemption. It's the literal aspect of you being purchased by Christ's blood out of this slavery and into sonship. An inheritor. Royalty. That's who you are if you're in Christ. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. So Paul's letting him know by using this illustration and then explaining it, that's who you were. That's who you once were in the same way. You were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We'll get back to that phrase because it's used again in 9. But then he's talking about Christ. He goes, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, Who is he? He's God. Born of a woman, also man. Born under the law, meaning the curse. To redeem those who were under the law. He's purchasing all of those outside of the law. He takes the curse for himself. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Who did it? Christ did it. He's the redeemer. And now Paul is using this argument, bringing it to its theological end by now giving them an absolute. Because, not maybe, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son in your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are adopted, because you are redeemed, the Holy Spirit regenerates you and now makes you realize who you are in Christ makes you look at the law and go, oh, wretched man or woman that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Receiving the Spirit also gives you this union in Christ. No male, no female, no Greek, no Jew, no Gentile. What does he mean by that? means none of that none of the things which you describe yourself as in this life matter when compared to the idea of the fact that you've been put into union with God through Christ and the Holy Spirit is the is the seal of that reality that's what Paul's telling them and now that you've received that Holy Spirit you can say and cry out 
as Christ did on the cross. Abba, Father. That designation is personal. Uh, the best way to kind of, I think, think about it is to say, it's like the, the idea of saying, dear dad. Or dearest father. It's formal and also very personal. And only those who have been put in this place of sonship can actually, because they have the spirit, cry out to God in this designation, no longer of just judge, but as father. Oh God. Think of the moments when you pray. I want you to remember this. Generally, when we pray, we just simply say, Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. Think about this. Dearest Father. Dear Dad. The formality and the intimacy of what Christ has given you. We're supposed to meditate on those things. Paul's calling this congregation. Again, this is the exclamation point. This is who you really are in Christ. What these false teachers want you to do is be slaves once again. And you're going to see his argument. That seems to be what you are doing to yourselves. And this is one of the most magnificent sections. This could be like five weeks of just griping at people, but I gave it one week. <laughs> we have an opening for deacon. <clears throat> Sorry. Formerly, when you did not know God. Again, look at the language. Formally. He's, he's addressing saints. He's addressing believers. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were what? Enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves, listen to what he tells them, you want to be once more. He uses this phrase, twice in in a few verses elementary principles it's or i should say it's it's interpreted as elementary principles it's it's just elements he uses this as well this is used by the author of hebrews this is used as well as in romans it's also something that has a bit of debate on what what he means by this so i'm going to give you sometimes i do this there's three views i hold to the third view and you can hold the other views if you want to, but as it pertains to today, I have the microphone. And so principles, or, or I'm sorry, as, it, as it's interpreted as elementary principles, you can see that the word itself means elements. What people will often say, or one view, <coughs> excuse me, is that this has to do with a remedial religious understanding, meaning the first type of understanding of religion, just in general. Uh, Jew, Gentile, anyone across the board, what they believe God is, and that kind of thing. So it's seen as this kind of first understanding of what, what, what religion is. But now they've been brought out of that and into the fullness of Christ. I don't think that that's probably uh, the best understanding 
for a few reasons, but as I look at the time, I'll, I'll sum it up at some other time. The second one has to do is where he believes principles Paul is talking about, um, I mean, elements, he's talking about the law itself. Like this, is the, this is him talking about the law. The problem with that interpretation is that he's already included the Gentiles, and this is a mostly Gentile church that he's addressing. And so the idea of the law, which he'll address in other letters, other letters that, that, that the Gentiles were completely without the law. So it seems more of a stretch than anything. But, but here, the way that it's used in kind of an older sense that the Greeks and the, the, the Romans would have understand best is as, as the elements were attributed to gods themselves. False gods, obviously. The idea that, they were, that there was some type of element that attributed to the deity itself, and it was like earth and fire and water. If your kids have ever watched, what's the thing? He's got an arrow on his head. Avatar, or you yourself have watched it. If you don't have any children yet, just saying. The idea of, of these elements were attributed to some pagan deity. And the way Paul writes this, in, in, in idea, I would say, much a broader sense, is that this third interpretation, one, one I hold to and will be, will be teaching as here, is that it has to do with, in essence, fallen things, false gods, Satan, and this fallen world, and the evil spirits that pose as false gods, or as Paul will, will write. So when he writes, formerly when you did not know God, but were enslaved by nature to those that are not gods, but now you came to know God, now you want to turn back to those worthless elements of the world and you want to be their slaves once more you observe days and months and seasons and years i am afraid i may have labored over you in vain and so paul's talking about here you have you are a recipient of christ you are a recipient of his spirit he's proven to them that they are sons and daughters and inheritors of the promise which is greater than anything. Is one true God, they've come into a relationship where through the Spirit, they can even use their position of royalty to cry out to him as dear dad. Formal yet intimate. Something they've received. And yet, by entertaining this false teaching, In application, it seems as if they want to go back to slavery. They want to go back to worshiping false gods. That's a strong statement. Paul's telling them that when he hears about what they're believing and what they're entertaining, it looks like they'd rather be slaves to sin once again. This imagery should come no as surprise to us as we think of, of Old Testament aspects, particularly with the plagues of Egypt. And the Hebrews are, are brought to the edge of the, the sea and the waters are split. 
and they walk on dry ground, and the greatest military of the time is destroyed. And they walk out into the desert, and they get a little hungry. And they say, oh, that we were slaves again. And every time, every time that you indulge, every time you seek comfort in something else, other than the Redeemer, other than Christ, you tell God, oh, that I were a slave again. Oh, that I could go back and get a warm meal. We are heirs of the promise. Royalty purchased out of slavery so that we would not go back. And yet constantly, daily, we keep trying to go back. That's not the life that the Christian man and woman is supposed to lead. And the reality is Paul attributes it to embracing false teaching. And this may seem more easy for us to understand. Oh, the, the, the law, go back to the law. Well, that's foolish. Why were these Galatians so foolish? Now they were free. And they didn't even have the law before. They, they, weren't, they weren't a part of Israel. They didn't have the law. They had pagan gods. And now the law is introduced. And they're believing that, that that's where they should go. They're going in reverse. What's wrong with these Galatians? Well, at least the Galatians were chasing something that was in God's word and not understanding it. We chase all manner of pagan idolatry. All it has to do is convince us that it's going to make us feel good. It's going to comfort us, entertain us, make us forget. Sure, for a moment. Paul writes this church into all of us, pleading with a pastoral heart. God has done so much so that you would not live a life of continual slavery and continual loss of joy. Rather, he keeps Christ before you to the point of where he writes, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? That's the verse where I say the NIV does a little bit better. It says, what happened to your joy? 
He uses personal interactions with this church to describe something that has changed in them. The joy he saw at the beginning of when he, they were introduced to their salvation in Christ, now they've entertained this false teaching and taken it in, and now, now it's affected the way in which they see Paul. The interaction, the written interaction that would have happened between them that he alludes to. He's alluding to a physical ailment, which most people believe is probably that idea, the, the same thing which he calls a thorn in his side that, that God didn't give him. We don't know what it is because he says the thing with the eyes. People are like, well, maybe he had, we don't know what it is. What he's saying is that such was their love for him, even as he was a burden in his eyes to them because they had to care for him. So the apostle Paul arrives People come to faith through the sharing of his gospel, and he has to stay there for a while. Why? Because he's sick, and he needed help while he healed. Oh, there goes the prosperity gospel. There goes the idea that didn't have enough faith, he got sick. Didn't have enough faith. Where's your money? Guess you aren't thriving, Paul. That's their new favorite word, thriving. Everything's thriving. No, the apostle Paul, chosen by God, and by God's sovereign hand, is in such a state physically that he can't care for himself in this church of new believers has to care for them. And their love grows in such a manner that he even uses this very... kind of seemingly grotesque idea. If my eyes stopped working, you would have given me yours. That's the idea that he's trying to put forward. And then he goes, what happened to your joy? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy By telling you the truth? Seventeen. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. Paul spells out the heart of the desire of the wolf. The heart of the desire of the false teacher who perverts the gospel. The true heart of the false teacher, while with flattering words, as Paul said, they act like they want to lift you up or make much of you, but their zeal is for themselves. He he dealt with this everywhere in Corinthians. The teachers were of a different caste in both letters. They were professional orators who were attractive, according to Paul, and spoke eloquently. And Paul talks about himself as looking normal and not speaking impressively. Did you know that the love chapter in 13 is a a polemic against those teachers? The idea of a clanging bell without love, the idea of speaking with tongues of angels is a 
is an argument for the ridiculous to say even these people as they're, they're said to speak in such eloquently, but they have not love. In essence, they are worthless. And he's saying the same thing here. These false teachers don't love you. They don't care for you. They don't care for the flock. They care for themselves. They care for lifting themselves up. One thing that this church and the early church had that better than us is that 2,000 years ago, false teaching hadn't had the ability to proliferate in the manner that it has today. False teaching didn't have the ability to be a part of a culture that was so very progressive. Didn't have a populace, including the church, who'd been pressed down to a place where they thought, well, I don't want to insult anyone. I don't want people to feel bad. Well, Paul wanted people to feel bad. Mainly, he wanted the false teachers to understand who they were opposing. It wasn't Paul the apostle. It was the Most High God. And the people that the false teachers were oppressing and sucking the joy from their teaching weren't just random people who they were stealing money from, which they were. They were God's sons and daughters. And false teachers have to be looked at in the same way that Paul looked at them. Opponents to the gospel. There's a lot of false teachers today that hide behind the name church and Christianity. And oh, I'm out of time. But understand, almost everywhere you look and listen and read, deception is everywhere. The largest church planning organization in the country is called the Association, Association of Related Churches, or ARC with a C. They can't even spell properly. And they're the ones I was talking about with the thriving. Their model is this. We're the biggest church planning network in the country. We get people with no education, no, no kind of checking whether or not you know they qualify in the role of elder overseer, which we don't believe in, and we'll give them thirty to fifty thousand dollars, and we want them to spend it on lights and smoke machines and a professional band and blanketing the area with mailers. Hope City, Houston, is a part of this. If you ever were in the Cypress area a few years ago and received the the very pretty flyer, and then after that they set up a payment plan for this church in perpetuity at a percentage rate. No interest for a few years for them to pay the thirty dollars to $50,000 back. Then in perpetuity, they, that church pays ARC 2% of their annual budget forever. And they believe in the mosaic leadership model, meaning there's one, one pastor, He's a prophet, oh, and his wife. They're both prophets, and you can't argue with them. In the last five years, there have been no less than 30 
pastoral failures, almost all of them sexual in nature. And you know what their answer is? Build a $5 million retreat to restore those pastors to ministry. I don't even get to the terrible messages of thriving in life that they preach. Each of those churches throughout the country have over 5,000 people that call themselves members. That's the tip of the iceberg in our world today. False teaching is everywhere. And it will rob you of your joy. It will make, whereas the, the Galatians were told, the gospel plus, most today will say the gospel less. Just say, Jesus, you're my Savior, and you're saved, and just live however you want. Just make sure you thrive. Look at Paul's pastoral heart. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone For I am perplexed by you. The reality of the Galatians situation. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. As I hope it doesn't seem far off to you. I hope you're honest enough with your own heart and your own mind. To see the ease with which you will receive anything that wants to draw you back into a life of slavery. Whatever sin, whatever idol, whatever thing that you are thinking about right now that you're like, God, deliver me. He will. He will deliver you. But you have to give that up to him. God, turn my eyes and my heart to you, Lord. There is nothing on this earth, nothing I hear, nothing I see, that compares to the riches of your gospel. You are royalty. Royalty meant for an inheritance that God will give you in eternity. The Son has taken your curse on the cross for you and for His glory so that you might, for the short time that you are here, He has put you here to glorify his name as a city on the hill. 
as a light to the nations. Cast off that which which you are enslaved by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that is you and you need help, please talk to someone. One of the elders, someone you trust, people want to come alongside you. Embrace the freedom that you have in Christ. The freedom to glorify Him through the rigor of this life until He comes. May He be glorified. May He be glorified. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power. We thank You for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That Spirit, (coughs) excuse me, that has redeemed us, sealed us, convicts us, and Lord, what your people are in most need of, comforts us, strengthens us, and guides us in perseverance. Lord, continue your sanctifying work on your people. Let us cast off that which is worthless and that draws our eyes and our minds and our hearts away from you. God, let us cast away any false teaching that perverts the gospel and robs us of our joy. And let us be reminded and remind ourselves and remind each other that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. May you be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.